This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine, by Norman Solomon. From Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria, and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, the United States has been at perpetual war for at least the past two decades. 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan set into motion a hugely consequential shift in America's foreign policy, a constant state of war that is almost entirely invisible to the American public. War Made Invisible by the journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon exposes how this happened and what its consequences are, from military and civilian casualties to drained resources at home. Necessary, timely, and unflinching, War Made Invisible by Norman Solomon is available now from the New Press. Order your copy wherever books are sold. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Few figures in 20th century American history loom larger than J. Edgar Hoover. The longtime head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation was the consummate bureaucrat, a man who may have had a greater impact on the course of American history than any other unelected public official in the country's history. Listeners will probably be familiar with the zeal with which Hoover tried to uproot the left from American life and his repeated successes in doing so. From his early career role in the Palmer Raids, attacking immigrant radicals throughout the United States, even personally overseeing the legendary anarchist Emma Goldman's deportation to Russia, to stoking the Second Red Scare that became known as McCarthyism, which historian Ellen Schrecker has said should really be called Hooverism to his attempts to disrupt and destroy the civil rights movement and the new left as a whole in the 60s and 70s. Understanding J. Edgar Hoover is central to understanding why left and progressive politics have been so weak in the United States. And it should be understood personally. If you are listening to The Dig, J. Edgar Hoover probably would have thought you were a traitor with no place in American life. Hoover served for nearly half a century in the FBI, and his legacy extends far beyond his attacks on the left. Today, my guest host, Jacobin editor Micah Utrecht, is interviewing historian Beverly Gage, the author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover in the Making of the American Century. Gage meticulously details the man, his earliest personal and political influences, his work, and his life, all of which are inextricably linked. We're currently experiencing a moment that might be familiar— reminiscent of the time after 9-11, or the anti-communist repression that Hoover presided over for so many decades. We're experiencing what it feels like when so many powerful institutions across American life come together to declare our movements beyond the bounds of legitimate political discourse. But the American left is too big and too unafraid now. This, thankfully, is not McCarthyism's second coming, because this time we are too united, too numerous, and already too powerful. So many people and organizations have made it absolutely clear that they will not be intimidated out of speaking up and struggling in solidarity for a free Palestine. We're far from winning this fight, but we're creating a political earthquake that they can't ignore. 
Before we get started, The Dig is a unique political education project made possible overwhelmingly by those of you listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have books, tote bags, coffee mugs to send you as a thank you, depending on how much you give and whether or not you live inside or outside the U.S. And our excellent newsletter, which you can check out at thedigradio.com, is emailed to every contributor, no matter how much you contribute or where you live. But the real reason you should contribute is because that's how we make this political education project happen. We don't paywall the dig because we want the dig to get into as many ears as possible. And that works only because those of you who can't afford to contribute do so. Please contribute now if you think what we're doing is important. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Beverly Gage, professor of history at Yale University and the author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, which received the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for biography and numerous other awards. Beverly Gage, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, it's great to be here. J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation for nearly 50 years. And having read your biography of him, it seems safe to say that he was perhaps the most influential unelected bureaucrat in all of American history, or certainly near the top. And your book is a story of Hoover turning the FBI into a modern, efficient law enforcement organization whose law enforcement priorities frequently reflected his own obsessions with leftist radicals, civil rights organizers, and progressive activists of all kinds. Uh, But he also, of course, had a career that extended much greater than that. So is it accurate to say that uh, he is one of the most influential unelected bureaucrats in all of American history? And how is it that he came to occupy this position for so long and with so little accountability? I do think it's safe to say that Hoover was the most powerful unelected bureaucrat in American history. As you said, he was head of the FBI for almost half a century, and it was a particularly important half century in American history. So he started in 1924 and he died on the job in 1972. That gets us from the Coolidge administration to the Nixon administration, which of course is the period in which the American security state was built, the period in which the federal government expanded dramatically, and Hoover had his fingers in pretty much everything throughout that time period. Let's talk about his early years and personal life. You do a very careful and I think admirable job of talking about Hoover's own psychology. And you always want to avoid overly psychologizing public political figures. But with Hoover, that seems to be fairly difficult to avoid. How did you approach this question of Hoover's, let's say, eccentric mind when you were writing the book? I definitely didn't want a psychobiography to be the end product, in part because I'm not really qualified to do that, right? I'm a political historian. And at the same time, all biography and this biography in particular does have this element of psychology attached to it. 
you know, with Hoover, I tried to kind of work from the available and documentable historical evidence. He's he's born in Washington, D.C. He dies in Washington, D.C. He never lives anywhere else. You know, and a lot of what I was able to find about his childhood were these moments that really contradicted the way that he had presented his own childhood, which was as this idyllic kind of pastoral moment before things started going wrong in America. But I was actually able to find some moments of real trauma, murders, suicides, mental illness, all pretty close to him as a child. And so I sort of tried to stick with some of that evidence and let it speak for itself to some degree. Yeah, that seems to suggest some of the reasons why he went the directions that he did throughout his long career. Although the, the kinds of childhood dramas that you document that you dug up, I think, for the first time, right, uh, as a story that this had not been mentioned in other biographies of Hooper. They also don't, though, fully explain the, 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 the full on reactionary direction that he went with his career. Right. I think to the degree that those particular childhood events involving his family shaped him, it was also in a much larger social and political context. So I do think that he grew up both because of his moment, the early 20th century, the progressive era, um, and also because some of these pressures in his family, uh, with a very powerful and kind of anxious sense of what a man was supposed to be. (laughs) And this is really one of the central themes of the FBI. How is a man supposed to present himself to the world? How is he supposed to behave? How is he supposed to show that he is successful in a very dramatic and public way? And I do think there are some roots, as I say, both in these larger progressive era currents of anxieties about masculinity and in his own experience in his family. But a lot of what I focus on in the book are these broader political themes, the ways in which his childhood in Washington, D.C., I think, shaped him with a kind of progressive reformist good government tradition of sorts that he did carry on into the administrative state throughout his life, and then also shaped his conservative ideology, particularly around race, but around other things as well, religion, gender, anti-radicalism, and anti-communism in pretty deep ways pretty early on. You write early in the book about his membership in the Kappa Alpha fraternity at George Washington University, and that becomes a thread throughout the book, really because Kappa Alpha men are constantly showing up throughout the rest of the story. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that fraternity and how it shaped Hoover's politics, his orientation to life, his hiring practices, all the ways that uh, this fraternity shaped J. Edgar Hoover. When J. Edgar Hoover began to study law at George Washington University, which at the time was mostly a kind of night school for future government servants, um, he joined a fraternity, as you say, called Kappa Alpha. And that had been widely known, the fact that he had been a fraternity member, and then the fact that he hired lots of early FBI officials out of his own fraternity in 
his own university even. But what hadn't been known and what I was really kind of stunned by um, was what Kappa Alpha actually was in the early 20th century, which was an explicitly Southern fraternity, a fraternity that was deeply devoted to a kind of romantic racist lost cause ideology of the old south it had been founded explicitly to carry on the traditions of robert e lee and by the time hoover joined its most famous members were people like thomas dixon who had written the novels glamorizing the ku klux klan that were then made into the film birth of a nation and so hoover is steeped in this he's very committed to this fraternity it's the source of his social identity certainly in college but even beyond he remains very involved uh, he was chapter president um and he really prided himself and i think was shaped by this kappa alpha vision and we really need to think of him as basically a conservative white Southerner in his outlook on the world. You say that within the fraternity itself, there was a legend that its early members actually helped to create the first Ku Klux Klan uh, that was founded around the same time as the fraternity, which is a shocking thing to read, that, that this institution that would make claims like this would be one of the most central institutions in shaping how the eventual director of the FBI came to see himself and his place in the world and racial hierarchy and his innate suspicion of anyone who wanted to pose any kind of challenge to the status quo, right? Right. It's not clear that they did actually help uh, to found the Ku Klux Klan, but I think the more important point is that in their journals during the era that Hoover was in the fraternity, it was widely kind of bandied about the possibility that not only had they helped to found the Klan or been intimately tied to the early Klan, but that this might be something to celebrate. As I said, we don't really uh, know the historical evidence per se, and there seems to be some difference of opinion, even in Kappa Alpha at the time, about uh, whether that was true, but it was not something that they were denying, and certain members like Thomas Dixon thought they should come out and really celebrate it. Hoover's, I think it's safe to say, homosexuality. I don't know if you go as far as saying that, yes, Hoover was gay, but uh, something like homosexuality uh, seems to be, I mean, it's obviously something that Hoover is, that is very, uh, he's very known for now, all kinds of rumors, urban legends or whatever you want to call it about uh, Hoover uh, cross-dressing, which I don't think you mentioned at all in the book. And I think I've heard you say elsewhere that you you found no evidence of. but. Uh, this is something that was very central to Hoover's life. It was kind of an open secret in Washington that he was in a relationship of some sort with Clyde Tolson, uh, which certainly looks in many ways like a romantic relationship. And as he grew in power and prestige in Washington, he was constantly making headlines in the society pages and often alongside Clyde Tolson, there were sometimes even stories that were published that alluded to Hoover being gay or suggested it. Yet none of those stories actually seemed to cause much of a serious problem for Hoover. Obviously, he ma maintained his position until the day that he died. Whatever he was doing in his personal life seemed to be in some ways at odds with the kind of right-wing moralism that he was constantly hectoring the country about. 
that's a sort of strange situation. It, it's strange uh, to read in your book of of people who were very much on board with that kind of right wing moral crusade, who also think of J. Edgar Hoover as their their best friend uh, or as a close ally in, in their own right wing politics. Can you talk about that aspect of Hoover's life? I think strange situation does uh, sum it up. But you say I don't come out right and say Hoover was a gay man. So there, there are two reasons for that, really. One is that, as with many people and many historical figures, we don't know very much about what he was doing in the bedroom. So um, it's hard to say whether his relationships with other men were actually sexual. We just don't have uh, much evidence on that front. Um, and then the other is that, of course, Hoover didn't present himself to the world in that way. Um, and I think probably fundamentally didn't understand himself that way. Although there's lots of evidence, of course, that Clyde Tolson was his primary romantic, intimate, social, even familial partner throughout most of his career. And it's clear that he never dated women, right? He had these intimate relationships with men. And there's more evidence about that than one might think. Some of my favorite source material for the book was Hoover's collection of personal photo albums, which particularly in the 1930s have just dozens and dozens of intimate photos of his vacations with Clyde Tolson, um, of Clyde on the beach, of Edgar on the beach. They're gazing into the camera at each other, right? So you can read that evidence. And they were very public about this relationship for most of their lives, again, particularly in the 30s and 40s, before it was so dangerous in Washington to be known as a gay person, right? Before it became federal policy that gay people would be fired from their jobs. And so in terms of the gossip sheets, in terms of newspaper coverage, there's just lots and lots of documentation about their lives together, their meals together, the fact that they traveled together, the fact that they went to each other's family events, family funerals, um, in addition to, of course, being the number one and number two guy at the Bureau for this whole period of time. In this period, they're in Washington, high society and high society outside of Washington. They're being in, invited to all kinds of nightclubs and high society events. And you know, as we mentioned, it's sort of an open secret of what their relationship is. And it struck me while I was reading your book that they were hobnobbing with all of these people who, if you had asked them, they would have said that they were you know, openly uh, opposed to homosexuality into any kind of alternative, any any deviation from the standard heterosexual uh, life arrangement. Uh, but they also were in this elite stratum of society where it almost seemed like the rules were suspended for someone like them, that, you know, these were moral strictures for thee, but not for me, for the people who occupied those higher places in uh, American society. And so people didn't seem to be particularly bothered by what they knew was Hoover's flouting of those conventions. One of the things that was really stunning to me about doing this research was 
exactly that, how open this relationship was, how widely recognized it was in the kind of elite circles they moved in, in Washington, in New York, um, in California, where they vacationed together every year in August at a, a kind of fancy resort where lots of Republican elites and others hung out. You know, Richard Nixon, if Richard Nixon was inviting Edgar to dinner, he would also invite Clyde. And there are all of these, uh, you know, kind of a affectionate social letters back and forth about, you know, how they really enjoyed the pink cocktails that Clyde had prepared when Dick and Pat were together with Edgar and Clyde, right? So it was this very, very open social relationship. And yet, of course, it was full of secrets. And Hoover and Tolson themselves uh, were in charge of enforcing federal policy that required them to do investigations of the sex lives of federal employees. Those FBI investigations were responsible for lots and lots of people ultimately being fired, being socially sanctioned, particularly in the 40s and 50s at the height of the lavender scare. I think at one point you even have some correspondence between Richard Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover, where one of them says, maybe Nixon, that nobody understands Nixon like Hoover does. I mean, they've got this like, it's not romantic, but it's clearly a very affectionate personal relationship that the two of them have because they are on the same page in terms of their their political and moral crusades, whatever it is that J. Edgar Hoover is doing in his personal life. Yeah, Hoover and Nixon were great friends. It's one of the most interesting relationships to me. I mean, I admit that I did not expect to, you know, in my scholarly career, say things like, I just love the relationship between J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon, but it's fascinating because they not only shared a certain kind of political outlook and a certain set of political sympathies, but they really did appear to be friends, these two men who uh, I think most people would think of as among the most friendless figures in our political life, uh, really did seem to uh, to care about each other and feel comfortably with each other. Hoover's position was technically a nonpartisan one. It was unelected, yet he managed to successfully portray himself throughout his career as a kind of neutral bureaucrat, while still openly proclaiming his reactionary politics for decades. He made no secret about what his political beliefs were. And I was surprised in reading the book to learn that his two closest White House allies in your telling were the two liberal titan presidents of the 20th century, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, so how is it that this happened? I think you've described very well sort of the political puzzle of the book, or I think the the two pieces of politics that one needs to understand to understand Hoover. One is that he was kind of steeped in a progressive era tradition that emphasized the importance of nonpartisan professional career government service that would stand as a counterweight to partisanship that would bring expertise and professionalism into the government. And he really was a believer in that of sorts, and in many ways, um, I think, executed it effectively at certain moments, both in the ways that he built the FBI, but particularly um, in his public image, right? He was constantly saying, you know, the FBI is a nonpartisan institution. 
At the same time, he had very, very clear conservative beliefs of his own, particularly around communism, around race, around religion, around crime, and he made no secret of that either. And so this is a combination we don't see all that often in our politics, right? I mean, particularly in the Trump era and since, a belief in you know professional government service and expertise and a, and a deep ideological conservatism. But Hoover put those things together and made them work. Now, one of the reasons that it worked during his period is because the parties themselves looked so different, right? So you could be a conservative and be a Democrat, you could be a liberal and be a Republican, right? The makeup of the parties was different. And so Hoover had real constituencies on uh, both sides of the aisle in a partisan sense. And he was also very good at just doing political favors for people, um, at ingratiating himself, not only with figures in the White House, but with Congress as a whole. Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt were particularly interesting because you know, they were great believers in state building. And one piece of the state that they really believed in building was the FBI. Hoover was pretty young when Roosevelt was president, but uh, I think Roosevelt, more than anyone else, was responsible for you know the essential building blocks of the FBI, giving the FBI its crime-fighting powers, giving it its political surveillance and intelligence powers. And then by the time Lyndon Johnson came along, um, he and Hoover had been pals for a long time. They were neighbors on the same block of 30th Place in Washington. And I think Johnson saw all of the ways in which you know this much older and much more powerful Hoover could really be useful to him. We mostly remember Hoover for his political beliefs and for his overreach and some of his repressive policies that he carried out. But throughout the book, constantly, you are talking about his role as an effective bureaucrat. And I wonder if you could talk about that just for a moment, because whatever you think of Hoover's political beliefs, if you find them repulsive even, you have to hand it to him that he was an incredible modernizer of the Bureau, that he was embracing new technologies, that he was constantly aiming to reshape the way that the Bureau functioned so that it would be more efficient. And he was just very much in general on top of his game at the Bureau. And the Bureau emerged from his tenure, not just different politically, but different operationally in, in, a, in a sort of new and improved fashion. And that's one of the main reasons why it became as powerful as it did. One of the great testaments to Hoover's skills as a bureaucrat was simply the fact that he managed to last there for 48 years, right? He had served under four Democratic presidents, four Republican presidents, any one of them, and actually any attorney general, in theory, uh, could have fired Hoover at any moment. And uh, so for better or worse, he was there a very long time, and that is a, a testament to something. But I think he also had a, a, another set of bureaucratic skills, which really were about institution building, about administration, um, and that were sometimes at odds with his own political ideology and his own sentiments. You know, when it comes to fundamental aspects of his political worldview. He was incredibly consistent. You can look at him at the age of 22 denouncing communists and anarchists, and you can look at him you know, 50 years later, 55 years later at the time of his death, and he sounds 
incredibly similar, right? Certain things didn't change at all, these important building blocks of his ideology. On the other hand, he was incredibly flexible as an administrator and as a bureaucrat, and he knew how to respond to crisis. Most of the FBI's power emerges in moments of kind of intense social change and crisis. They get a lot of crime fighting powers in the midst of the kind of war on crime of the New Deal. A lot of Hoover's intelligence and surveillance powers come about as a result of the Second World War. And in these moments of you know, crisis and uh, need for someone to kind of take the situation in hand, uh, he was often there. He knew what he was doing. He could make his bureaucracy turn as it needed, even as he was incredibly consistent in his fundamental ideas. Years ago, I read two histories, one of the FBI and one of the CIA by the former New York Times reporter, Tim Weiner. And I remember being struck about reading those two books in succession about how you read the FBI book and you're just so impressed at how Hoover always had such a, a, a tight hold on whatever it was that was going on in his FBI. And, and in your book, you talk about these details about, you know, he shows up to the office and there's food sitting around here. This is going to produce rodents. You know, there are, there are men taking off their, their, their coats like during the workday and just walking around in shirt sleeves. Like this is awful. And so, you know, he ran such an incredibly tight ship and one way you can, compare and contrast of how tight a ship it was run to was compared to the CIA and the way that the CIA was often going off kind of half cocked. There was, you know, the money was flowing to all kinds of crazy projects that resulted in all kinds of uh, sticky situations for the CIA as they're carrying out all kinds of uh, interventionist uh, imperialist policies abroad. Uh, and, and that there would be big, big messes that would have to be cleaned up after the CIA did its dirty work all around the world. And Hoover was operating from a similarly kind of right wing politics, but he ran such a tighter ship than what was going on at the CIA. The FBI CIA stuff is really fascinating to watch from a historical perspective, right? These two institutions that seem kind of in the present day large and powerful and eternal, but to watch them be created in these very contingent situations and to watch them be created with such different structures, institutional models, institutional personalities. Of course, Hoover hated the CIA <laughs> and he hated it in part because he had hoped to get some of the CIA jurisdiction at one moment as the Second World War was ending. But he also hated the CIA for, for lots of things, you know, pretty legitimate reasons. Um, he thought the CIA was lawless, particularly in its early years that it was being run as this kind of very loose institution with no standards about who it was hiring. He had certain resentments as a you know, as a middle class boy, uh, all of these Ivy Leaguers coming in and thinking they knew everything about the world and they could run the world. So there were all sorts of reasons that this rivalry developed, but it was really fascinating to watch it develop in a particular place, in a particular time with these very particular personalities at work. One of the central ways that he was able to build and maintain the career that he did was a result of his really expert public relations strategy. Hoover made himself into a national celebrity and he built the Bureau's reputation such that it became an incredibly widely trusted institution of American life. And he 
did this seemingly in a wide variety of ways from working with Hollywood to develop TV shows and movies that cast the FBI in an incredibly positive light. He cultivated journalistic sources and people who he could you know, leak information to, perhaps in exchange for positive descriptions of what Hoover was doing or defense of Hoover if the left would attack him at any time. So can you talk about that role of public relations in him securing his position within the FBI and within the government bureaucracy? It was absolutely crucial to Hoover's career, this public relations apparatus that he built up. Though I I would say he himself really wasn't a natural at this. It was something he had to learn. He was actually kind of a nervous person when it came to public speaking. Uh, There's evidence that he had had a stutter as a young child that he had gotten over, but he was a pretty tightly wound person. (laughs) So, you know, the kind of charismatic ease of public relations was not necessarily his natural strong suit, but he was also a quick learner. And by the 1930s, he really came to understand how important public relations was going to be, not only to his own career, but to the future of his bureau. Um, And from that moment on, they had a huge amount of bureau energy, expense, personnel going into public relations. And as you say, that meant everything from, you know, ghostwritten Hoover articles denouncing communists or delivering the latest crime statistics to working directly with Hollywood. It was to Hoover's benefit that the film codes came into being in the mid-1930s. And the film codes said that Hollywood movies couldn't allow the criminal to win. Uh, So Hollywood was on the lookout for, you know, heroic agents. And Hoover was happy to kind of provide those storylines, provide himself as a hero. But he also had other really interesting strategies. He had press sources. He had a Bureau Speakers Bureau uh, in which he trained agents to work with groups like the American Legion or the Daughters of the American Revolution to go out, talk with school children, talk with memberships, and kind of cultivate uh, this grassroots constituency. And coming out of this... You know, the FBI really was one of the most popular, most trusted institutions in American life in a way that I think can be hard to imagine, certainly in in our own moment. But really, since the revelations of the 60s, I think it's been hard to recapture just how popular Hoover himself was, how popular the FBI was uh, for most of the time that he was in office. Which then allows him to be protected and to maybe go out on a limb in terms of his right-wing politics sometimes, right? I mean, he certainly by the end of his career, he's feeling more emboldened to say what is actually on his mind. And he can do so uh, in part, especially in in the sort of heyday of of his popularity before the revelations of the 60s and 70s. Uh, He feels like he has enough capital in Washington and enough political cover and enough cover with his public support from the American people that he can sometimes even push back against presidents, right? Uh, he, He feels pretty emboldened for somebody who is an unelected bureaucrat. We have this image, I think, today that 
All of Hoover's power came from his secret files and the fact that he had secrets and he was going to strong arm powerful people in Washington because he knew about their affairs or their alcoholism or their, you know, secret political corruption. And there was some of that, no question about it. And, you know, <laughs> Hoover sometimes had less of it than people imagined that he did, but it doesn't really matter. As long as people think that you might have the goods on them, that's as good as actually having the goods on them. But one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to get a little beyond that and to look at the many, many, many other sources of his power and of his longevity. Um, and one of those was really this public relations stuff, the ability to cultivate a grassroots constituency. Another that really fascinated me was the way that he handled relations with Congress. Um, in the 1940s, when congressional committees began to get professional staff and professional investigators, Hoover stepped up and for the most important committees to him, provided them with agents to be on their staff, provided them with the research that could come out of the FBI and forged these very tight relations with Congress. So I think if you look at all of these different levels, his relations with the White House, his relations with Congress, his relations with Hollywood and the press, his ability to cultivate a grassroots constituency, and then what he did within the FBI itself in terms of building a very tight-knit institutional culture and set of institutional loyalties with himself as the man at the top. I think all of those pieces are really important to understanding his, his career and not just the fact that he did sometimes really have the goods on people. Given that his career and life span the majority of the 20th century, uh, we can't get into every aspect of his life, but I want to ask about a couple specific uh, incidents in his career, uh, the first of which is the Palmer Raids. And these raids were part of a program of repression and deportation of radical leftists in the United States. Can you describe what exactly those raids were for listeners who are not familiar with them? And uh, what was their long-term effect on American society? The Palmer Raids are really crucial for understanding Hoover. And also for, I think, understanding the evolution of the security state over the course of the 20th century. Hoover happened to graduate from law school in 1917, just as the United States was entering the First World War. And then uh, a few months later, just as the Bolshevik Revolution was occurring in Russia. And those two things really shape who he becomes and what his outlook toward the world is. His first job at the Justice Department was actually German internment, which we kind of forget about as part of World War I, but there was a pretty sustained program of trying to figure out which uh, German nationals living in the United States seemed to be dangerous or disloyal and then throwing them into internment camps. And that was Hoover's first job for the government was kind of making those sorts of judgments. He was so good at that kind of administrative work and those sorts of judgments that when he was 24 years old, he was put in charge of something called the Radical Division at the Justice Department, which was effectively the government's first 
peacetime surveillance effort that was quite explicitly aimed at left-wing radicals, at communists, as the new communist parties were just forming in the United States, at anarchists, labor organizers, etc. The main target, uh, in part because this was what you know, kind of the law would allow you to do were non-citizens who were either anarchists or communists, and they became the target of the Palmer raids. These were mass deportation raids, one in November of 1919 and one in January of 1920, that were aimed first at anarchists and then at communists. They're known as the Palmer Raids for Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, but Hoover, as head of the Radical Division, really was the administrator who was in charge of planning them, of tracking them, of making them happen. And he ended up denying that for a lot of his career because they became incredibly controversial. In some ways, this is the kind of birth moment of civil liberties consciousness. Uh, the very early ACLU is involved in pushing back against all of this. So they become incredibly unpopular, and Hoover, I think, carries that forward. Uh, but they were critical events in their moment. They were the first kind of uh, scandal of his life, and they were also you know, his first really uh, concerted attempts to contain the American left. How is it that he emerged from the Palmer raids, having played a key role during them, as not having to pay any kind of significant career price for his involvement? I mean, obviously, his trajectory within the FBI continued upwards after that, which was not true of everyone else who was involved in the raids. How is that possible? I think he was just kind of an energetic youngster. I mean, it's true, Palmer was Woodrow Wilson's attorney general. And when uh, Wilson left office, Palmer also left office and he left in disgrace. And a new Republican administration came in in 1921 that ultimately brought a new head of the Bureau of Investigation. That new bureau chief uh, looked around. He wanted a number two guy who knew the filing system, who knew the bureaucracy, who would carry out some of his aims. And Hoover, despite everything that had happened with the Palmer raids, I think was you know, a, a young person with lots of energy who was willing to do all the paperwork. And he became assistant director of the Bureau in 1921. You write in the book around the time of the Palmer raids that, quote, Hoover began an experiment unprecedented in federal history, the first systematic peacetime attempt to track the political opinions of non-citizens and to deport them en masse. He also began to collect information on native-born and naturalized citizens, assuming that the federal government would soon enact a peacetime sedition statute allowing for the prosecution and jailing of U.S. radicals. That initiative encompassed potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, anyone whose kindred agitations might bring them under federal scrutiny. This is the kind of mass surveillance program that now, of course, we have come to see as basically the norm in the United States. But he was doing so for literally millions of people that early on during the Palmer raids. I mean, he accomplished significant numbers of deportations of radicals. You even have a scene in the book where Hoover is on the very boat that Emma Goldman, the famed anarchist, is put on to be deported back to Russia, that he actually personally took over the case 
charging uh, Goldman with a variety of crimes in order to get her deported to Russia. And then when that succeeds, he is there on the boat to see her off as she gets deported. It was his first great political success, as he would have described it, the deportation of Emma Goldman. He bragged about it for the rest of his life. And there is this remarkable moment. She was being deported along with the anarchist um, and her partner, Alexander Berkman, uh, along with uh, more than 200 others who had been swept up in the Palmer raids uh, around Christmas of 1919. Um, they're being sent out of New York Harbor back to Russia, uh, revolutionary Russia in this moment. And Hoover is in fact actually there on the boat watching it all happen. Uh, he and Emma have some testy exchanges. And while the Bureau is still pretty small during these years, right, they aren't scaled up to being able to watch millions of people at that point. Uh, nonetheless, I think we can see in this the kind of birth of a certain form of federal political surveillance. And once that is accomplished, the deportation of anarchists like Goldman and Berkman, you say that that's when he turned his attention then to communists, right? That he almost seemingly uh, successfully extinguished the threat of anarchist agitation in the United States in his mind, and then he could move on to a new target, uh, which was these newly born communist parties uh, in the United States, at, obviously at the time of the Russian Revolution. Right. The first Palmer raids were in November of 1919, and they were aimed primarily at anarchists. Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were not actually taken in the raids. They had longer deportation cases that were in the works, and Hoover kind of threw them into the mix as well. And that first round of raids was really pretty popular. And so Hoover says, this is great. Let's do a bigger, better round in January of 1920. And in that moment, his targets become the newly formed Communist Party and Communist Labor Party. Because, of course, as historians of the left, we know that the first thing that the left is going to do is factionalize. <laughs> so when uh, the Communist Party splits off from the Socialist Party in uh, September of 1919, uh, there are not one but two communist parties formed, uh, the Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party. Hoover goes after both of them in that second round of raids. Now, this is the first time when the rubber really hits the road for Hoover in terms of his reactionary politics and his opposition to political radicalism, especially on the left, when, when it comes up against a real case of trying to prosecute leftists. Can you talk about what he thought about radicals? And what, what, what did he think radicals were up to? Uh, and why did he think that uh, they had no place in American life, that essentially anyone who wanted to see progressive change happen and, and, and you know, United States and was willing to agitate about it was somebody who had to be fully uprooted. And, uh, you know, certainly in the case of, uh, of uh, Emma Goldman, like literally had to be kicked out of the country. Can you talk about what why he took that orientation towards left wing politics? Hoover prided himself his whole career, and he actually kept reprinting these early memos. <laughs> he prided himself on being the first federal official to really try to understand, as he framed it, and to write memos attacking, legal briefs attacking uh, the communist parties as they were forming in 1919. 
Um, his main aim very early on was to prove that both the Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party uh, were subject to deportation laws, which said you could deport people with anarchist beliefs, but also people who advocated uh, the violent overthrow of the government. Hoover's worldview was essentially that the communists, most revolutionaries, but the communist party in particular, as time went along, was part of, first of all, a criminal conspiracy that was aiming at the explicitly violent overthrow of the U.S. government. And that was always really important for making any kind of legal case around these sorts of questions. Um, and that it was uh, un-American and a threat to the entire social order. This is incredibly consistent throughout Hoover's career, although you know, the flavor and emphasis changes a little bit over time. During the teens, um, during these Palmer raid years, his emphasis really was on revolution and revolutionary violence. There was a lot of anxiety in 1919 and 1920 um, that you were going to see some sort of violent revolutionary action in the United States. There were bombs going off. There was a mass strike wave. Uh, there was a real wave of sympathy for the Bolsheviks. And of course, we now know what ultimately happened, but the world in 1919 looked like uh, you might get a real eruption of not only mass strikes, but, but, but genuine revolutionary violence in the United States. So early on, I think that's a lot of Hoover's concern. Uh, later on, it becomes things like, you know, taking Soviet money, Soviet espionage, right? All of these things evolve over time, but his, uh, his sense that the communists posed the most important threat to the U.S. social order is really quite consistent throughout his career. Both in these early years of communist agitation in the U.S. and then throughout the rest of Hoover's life, he's constantly reiterating this belief that all radicals, no matter what they profess, no matter what stripe of radicalism they subscribe to, are inherently violent in, it becomes sort of comical throughout the book. I mean, if you find a radical saying they believe in the violent overthrow of the government, then obviously you found a radical who believes in the radical overthrow of the government. If you find a radical who claims not to believe that they want to violently overthrow the government, that's just a radical who is smart enough to tell the public that they don't believe in the radical violent overthrow of the government. But actually, we, we know that in their heart of hearts, that is what they're aiming to do. And that is true throughout his engagement with the Communist Party, you know, beginning in, in those years after the Re Russian Revolution, but then it reaches its sort of height of comedy, uh, tragic comedy, I guess, when you're talking about uh, movements like the Civil Rights Movement, where he's he's convinced that the same thing is going on of this movement whose leadership is largely, you know, Black Baptist preachers and uh, other types who are pretty far from uh, ever advocating anything like that kind of uh, violence and, in fact, are constantly counseling the opposite. But then you still have Hoover saying, no, 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 what it is that they actually believe is in violence and a violent overthrow of the status quo. And it's like it's almost like a willful ignorance of the specificities of what these different kinds of radicals and progressive activists are arguing for and what they actually believe in to the point where the reader, me as the reader, at least I had to question like, is this what Hoover actually truly believes? Or does he just find it 
politically convenient to, you know, he only has a hammer and everything is looking like the same kind of nail? I think it's a great question. And I don't think there's any one answer to it. Right. I think Hoover, there's no question Hoover was a true believer, right? And that he was a he was a real anti-communist in his core. He also had lots of institutional and personal interests in you know, promoting this way of thinking about the world in terms of the kinds of work that he wanted to do at the FBI, in terms of the FBI's own credibility. You know, one of the really challenging things for me as a historian was to try to sort out and to try to be fair about you know the places where there was some evidence that some of what Hoover was saying was in fact true and then to still give some sense of the the really outlandish ways in which you know kind of his ideological attacks not only on you know, the Soviet Union and the formal Communist Party, but on fellow travelers. Uh, he loved to go after people he called liberal dupes, right? So anyone who was a progressive or a liberal, right? So you were really bad if you were actually a Communist Party member. You were pretty bad if you were a fellow traveler moving in the Communist Party orbit, uh, but maybe not a party member, though you might be suspected of being a secret party member in that case. But you were also still bad if you were, say, a progressive or liberal anti-communist who he felt was nonetheless not being hard enough, was joining a communist front organization because you opposed fascism, say, right? That was still going to bring you kind of within the orbit of, uh, of Hoover's wrath and of the kind of person that he held in contempt and, and condemned. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers, supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. You say in the book and other historians of some of this period, like Ellen Schrecker, who wrote the book Many Other Crimes, talk about how Hoover was not wrong in identifying many of the people he identified as members of the Communist Party or of fellow travelers. I think in the popular memory, a lot of times people think about a period like uh, the McCarthyist period, which we can talk about now, uh, that, that you know, just a lot of innocent people got caught up in a great deal of hysteria that was whipped up, perhaps principally, or at least in part by someone like Hoover and certainly by a, a Joseph McCarthy. But, you know, Schrecker says in many other crimes that actually many of the people who the FBI, most of the people who the FBI identified as radicals, as communists, were indeed radicals. And so that seems to beg 
the question of what, what was at stake in this period in history uh, was not just do you have it right about whether or not someone is a communist, but if you are indeed right that they are a communist, what place should they have in American life? Uh, Hoover's answer was obviously they have zero place in American life that they need to be pulled up by the root from our society. But if we believe that this period was full of some kinds of serious excesses and infringements on civil liberties, that would seem to imply that there needs to be some place in American life for people who hold these beliefs and that they actually do not deserve to be hounded out of the country or hounded out of public life, that actually, you know, a pluralistic society includes space for people who hold these kinds of radical opinions. That's a great way of putting it. And I think it's absolutely correct. You know, I found myself in many moments being sometimes surprised, sometimes disconcerted by the actual say, evidence that the FBI had you know, of Communist Party complicity with Soviet espionage, of acceptance of Soviet money, of people who were, in fact, probably lying when they said that they weren't members of the party, right? The party did operate a secret apparatus. It had all sorts of secret operations, you know, sometimes understandably so, since they were being persecuted by the government. But nonetheless, right, often uh, the FBI did know what they were talking about when they said this person's a party member or this person holds these radical beliefs. The real question is, what do we make of that, right? What's the significance of that? Uh, what does that actually mean that this person deserves as a citizen, as a non-citizen? How do we want to think about the role of radical ideas in American life? And I think it's there that Hoover probably had his greatest impact. You can imagine a different FBI director in the early Cold War saying, like, look, the United States was going to go after Soviet espionage, right? I mean, there isn't any kind of conceivable world in which that wasn't going to happen. And that might have meant that the FBI was going to go after certain members or leaders uh, of the Communist Party. But you can envision a national security apparatus that kind of stopped there that said, you know, these are people breaking certain laws, direct threats to a certain kind of national security, and, and that's what we're engaged in. I mean, Hoover did something so much bigger and so much grander, right? He's not only engaged in these very targeted investigations, uh, he understands it to be his personal mission and his institutional mission to destroy the Communist Party. FBI agents go after a whole host of organizations, civil rights organizations, labor organizations, liberal and progressive organizations that really have nothing to do with the Communist Party per se. And then Hoover himself engages in an ideological crusade through this PR apparatus against you know, this thing called communism that entailed religion and race and how you were supposed to raise your family and demanded that every American you know, express their hostility to communism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he had this vision, not of just a kind of narrow national security threat, but of a grand existential threat to almost everything that he believed was sacred about American society. For someone like me, who is an editor at a socialist magazine, Jacobin, and works on a podcast like this one, The Dig, 
I've always thought that one of our sort of uh, meta tasks that we have set for ourselves is not just to get into specifics about history and left strategy and all of that stuff, but actually to try to undo this thing that that Hoover successfully accomplished, which was to uh, successfully say that these left-wing ideas have no place in American life. And a left magazine like Jacobin, a left podcast like The Dig, I mean, we're saying, actually, yes, these ideas do belong in the debate here. They should be debated. Uh, they are legitimate things to talk about. They are well within the bounds of acceptable conversation because we've seen what happens when they are not seen as proper proper they don't have a proper place within american life it, it ends up as you just mentioned not just getting rid of the radicals but ends up pulling liberalism far to the right the, you know, liberal ideas are no longer seen th their legitimacy is now in question it's not just the radicalism it has a, a conservatizing and chilling effect on the ideas that are acceptable in the society as a whole and to some degree, you know, because of the things that figures like J. Edgar Hoover and uh, Joe McCarthy were engaged in in the 40s and 50s, the left itself wrote some of that story out of its own past, right? That there was such an imperative uh, toward legitimacy, toward declaring yourself um, to be anti-communist, to be separated from the Communist Party, that some of the deeper history of radical commitments coming out of particularly the 30s and 40s, the left itself turned away from and denied and rejected. You know, one piece of this story that also was fascinating for me to see was the FBI's own assessments of what makes for a successful movement and what destroys a movement. So whether you're talking about you know, labor in the 30s, uh, civil rights later on, et cetera, but they would often send informants into meetings, not just to spy on people and not just say to advocate violence or something in the way that you might think, but just, <laughs> these were some of my favorites, First of all, to make the meetings really, really long and boring, to ask extraneous questions, to, you know, promote factionalism, uh, to demand that people, you know, sign on to the manifesto. I mean, they have this pretty accurate analysis of what makes people not want to be in your movement anymore. A lot of it had to do with bad meetings, and uh, they put a lot of time and energy into uh, creating bad meetings for leftist organizations. Having sat through many interminable leftist meetings in my lifetime, it makes me wonder if I've been sitting on meetings with FBI informants, because whether they were or not, they were doing a very good job of making those meetings really uh, unbearable to sit through. <laughs> well, one of the uh, other kind of funny things to come across in the archives, I saw this with the Communist Party, but then particularly later on with the Black Panthers and some of the 60s student movements, the FBI would be coming up with some disruptive operation, you know, that was going to get this leader fighting with this leader, or was going to foment this rumor, or was going to, you know, sow some form of factionalism. They would get it approved, uh, and then they would come back and say, oh, actually, Turns out we don't need to do it. They did it themselves. <laughs> well, certainly for that period, like let's say the 60s and COINTELPRO, which we'll get into more detail into in a minute, it seems like there were always these kinds of tensions that were present within the different groups that made up the new left. And 
yeah, either the FBI actually didn't have to do anything to to make those tensions boil over, or it would take very little agitation on the part of the FBI in order for those disagreements to boil over and sometimes result in violence. So there was already a very fertile ground for an organization like the FBI to operate in if they wanted to uh, disrupt or destroy those organizations. They often didn't have to do very much uh, on, on their own part to, because precisely because the ecosystem of left organizations in American political history is often such a fragile one that people have such disagreements and they believe strongly in democratic deliberation and uh they, they think that what's at stake is you know liberation for various kinds of oppressed people so you know they're 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 they've got their fists up ready to fight for their ideas and so it really doesn't require uh much to uh, turn that into a situation in which people are are at each other's throats and the fbi also understood and made great use of informants not only as people who were going to bring information, you know, sometimes valuable information, sometimes not so valuable information, but the fact that the FBI had informants, they kind of wanted it to be known and they wanted people in all sorts of organizations to be suspecting their own comrades of being informants for the police, for the FBI. Sometimes they would, in fact, spread rumors about particular figures who were not, in fact, their informants, but uh, they saw a certain utility in creating the kind of chaos internally that those rumors would produce. Let's talk about McCarthyism. Obviously, this history of Senator Joseph McCarthy and his right-wing anti-communist witch hunts is pretty well known. I was surprised to read in your book that Hoover kept McCarthy at arm's length for much of his career and, and you know he did not jump in with both feet into the kind of witch hunt that McCarthy was leading and sometimes explicitly so he would say that the bureau needed to keep its distance from McCarthy can you talk about that relationship and the two men's different approaches to anti-communism despite the fact that both of them were obviously some of the country's most zealous anti-communists during that period I think today, most people would consider J. Edgar Hoover and Joe McCarthy to be sort of interchangeable or imagine that they were these deep allies, and they certainly shared an anti-communist outlook. To some degree, they socialized together. They knew each other reasonably well. But Hoover was a much, much more careful person than Joe McCarthy was. And he was much more of an institution builder. McCarthy really was only an important force in politics from early 1950 to late 1954. He did a lot of damage during those years. He had a lot of influence, but he came and went. Hoover was there long before McCarthy. He was there long after McCarthy. And that's partly because he was a much more careful and systematic actor than McCarthy was. What McCarthy was good at doing was getting headlines, lobbing accusations, and in a very kind of Trumpian way, you know, throwing out one accusation when people fact-checked it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's a lie, that's not actually true. He would just turn around and be on to the next one, or he would attack the person who was saying that what he said wasn't true, et cetera. So he was really kind of a demagogue 
blog and a headline grabber. He did for a few years, obviously, have his own uh, congressional Senate subcommittee, but that's the role that he played. Hoover was really different, right? Hoover had this enormous institution at his disposal. Hoover was engaged in the question of anti-communism much, much earlier than McCarthy. You know, the Hollywood 10, which the FBI helped to uh, engineer the Hollywood hearings in front of HUAC, right? That's 1947, just to take one example, uh, long before McCarthy. Uh, Hoover has relationships with all sorts of different congressional committees, institutions within the government who are engaged in this project with him. And Hoover looked at McCarthy and said, you know, he is a loose cannon, right? He's actually going to do more to discredit the anti-communist cause than he's going to benefit it. Now, sometimes he defended McCarthy personally, said, well, you know, he's a puncher because he believes so passionately in all of this. But behind the scenes, he was often working to contain McCarthy. He didn't want to be closely associated with McCarthy. He was kind of mad when McCarthy hired former FBI agents to be uh, his investigators because he thought people would assume quite naturally that these men had access to uh, FBI information. And so uh, he really worked with the Eisenhower administration ultimately to to contain McCarthy uh, rather than to empower him. Is it your sense, though, that McCarthy actually hurt the kind of anti-communist project that Hoover was carrying out? Or did he successfully drag the public conversation in the United States so far to the right that even if Hoover didn't get on board with all of the excesses that McCarthy was carrying out, it changed the the weather in the society that 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 made the kind of anti-communism that Hoover was carrying out in a much more careful way through the FBI more acceptable? I think McCarthy produced a little bit of each. I think for liberals, for progressives, McCarthy became the symbol of excess, right? I mean, all of the ways in which we tend to think about McCarthy today. Uh, He became a symbol of civil liberties violations. Uh, The Supreme Court ultimately, you know, turns on the kind of anti-communist campaign in certain ways by the late 50s, largely in reaction to McCarthy. Um, And I think those are real responses. But on the right, it's really important to remember, mostly the right never denounced McCarthy. So certain people in the Republican Party did come out against McCarthy. That's one of the reasons you know, the Senate turns against him in 1954. But the ideological right never denounced McCarthy, even at the moment that McCarthy was being censured. You know, it's a little like Trump today. It was about 30, 35% of the population that thought McCarthy was great (laughs) and viewed his censure and his repudiation as hugely damaging, alarming, and in fact, it's the the turn of large parts of American society against McCarthy that helps inspire some of the early conservative movement, the founding of National Review, later on the founding of the John Birch Society, the sense that something's gone wrong, that the, the country would, would turn against a figure like McCarthy. It was shortly after the peak of the McCarthy years that the American civil rights movement starts to really into gear. And 
Hoover from the very beginning, you know, as you've mentioned before, through his years at Kappa Alpha, he's steeped in this kind of white supremacy and, and believes in a racial hierarchy in which white people are on top in the country. Uh, and he sees any kind of civil rights agitation as coming from the same old familiar sources. You know, it's actually the communists who are uh, at work or whatever. On the other hand, from the early years and well into the 60s at the height of civil rights agitation, um, he, he also does eventually come around to pushing back against the kind of KKK and other forms of white racist violence against civil rights workers. He comes to see that kind of violence almost in a similar way to how he saw McCarthy as like, these, these sort of reactionary yahoos are taking their project a little too far. Things are getting a little bit out of hand. And the hierarchy, as he wanted it to see it maintained, couldn't be maintained if there was disorder happening. If, for example, KKK members were murdering civil rights workers in the South. So can you talk about what his approach to uh, the civil rights movement looked like, as well as how he handled some of the more extremist right wing groups? I think the big theme is that Hoover came out of a segregated city of Washington, D.C. He was in Kappa Alpha, right? He has a highly racialized worldview. He resisted hiring Black men as agents. Uh, he viewed most civil rights agitation as being corrupt, communist-inflected, suspicious, dangerous, um, and he you know, conducted surveillance of civil rights organizers of varying sorts from his very first moments in government. He's looking at figures like A. Philip Randolph. He helped to orchestrate the deportation of Marcus Garvey. This is very on, early on in the teens and 20s before he was even director of the Bureau. Uh, this continues throughout most of his career and then, of course, really comes to a peak uh, in the 60s. On the other hand, he was a pretty canny operator. So there are some really interesting moments where he makes alliances with organizations like the NAACP, in which he senses uh, the wind changing a little bit during the Truman years. He actually conducts some pretty aggressive anti-lynching investigations. He testifies before Truman's Civil Rights Commission about the need to you know, contain Southern white violence. He takes the initiative to investigate the citizens' councils um, in the aftermath of Brown as massive resistance is coming along in the 1950s. And I think the moments where he's willing to make those moves uh, have three factors going. One is He's trying to sense the country's political direction, but particularly the political direction of his superiors at the White House and the Justice Department. Two, he was, you know, he was a lawman. I mean, he really didn't think that lynching in particular, acts of uh, racial violence in the South that are going unpunished, you know, that is actually not his view of law and order. <laughs> He doesn't like the ways that seems to delegitimize the police. Uh, he doesn't think that lawbreakers should be allowed to run free. He doesn't like mob violence, right? I mean, he is a law and order figure. And then he also, particularly in the white South, doesn't like the ways in which so much of 
uh, white Southern resistance to civil rights is being articulated as resistance to federal authority and particularly to uh, federal law enforcement. And so you have these really interesting moments where civil rights organizers are being surveilled by the FBI. They're kind of denouncing Hoover for not doing enough for the obvious racism that was sort of baked into the FBI during those years. But you also have massive resistors, the Ku Klux Klan, the citizens councils, all denouncing the FBI as this force of federal integration, right? One of George Wallace's first big moments when when he's a circuit court judge in Alabama is to say that if any FBI agent, this is the 1950s, if any FBI agent sets foot within his jurisdiction, he's going to have them you know, arrested as foreign interlopers trying to enforce civil rights. And yet, one of the things that when the civil rights movement really takes off in the 60s and when freedom rides are happening and other kinds of the, of the big civil rights campaigns are taking off throughout the South is things like young civil rights organizers speaking out repeatedly about the FBI not moving to protect them on the Freedom Rides, for example. And they're constantly saying that the FBI doesn't seem that interested in protecting them when they are trying to carry out these kinds of campaigns. And so there's this constant agitation that's happening from the civil rights movement that the FBI needs to be protecting them better. And there are times that Hoover and the Bureau say explicitly that, you know, our role is not to uh, act as uh, bodyguards for these activists who are essentially carrying out like a suicide mission and in, in trying to integrate these buses. And so there, there's constant agitation that has to happen before the FBI even takes up that role of trying to protect them and uh, to go after some of the more uh, extreme incidents of, of violence that happened in the 60s, right? Right. Hoover is suspicious of the civil rights movement as a whole, partly because of his racial views, partly because he thought quite rightly for many years, you know, that the Communist Party was one of the standard bearers of civil rights agitation. And so anyone involved in civil rights uh, might either be a communist or aiding and abetting the communists. But then in the 60s, as protest tactics begin to change, he gets a new objection, which is, you know, that civil disobedience, street protests are forms sometimes of lawbreaking, even within the bounds of the law. His position is, you know, if you want to go out there and provoke people as outside agitators and risk your lives, you know, be my guest, but it is not the job of the FBI to protect you. So, in instances like the Freedom Rides or the Birmingham protests or any number of other occasions in which civil rights organizers, Black people in general, are seen to be in danger and calling for federal protection. Hoover says, we're not guards, we're not policemen, we are investigators and professionals, and you know it's your own fault. And with very few exceptions, he refuses to protect them. Fascinating how the history of this era has been remembered in American pop culture. I'm thinking of films like Mississippi Burning, where the FBI is really treated as like the hero of this part of the civil rights struggle. And the whole 
tensions between the civil rights movement and the FBI, the whole insistence on the part of civil rights organizers that the FBI wasn't doing enough to protect them, that just sort of gets tossed out the window. And instead, we get portraits in popular culture of the FBI, uh, you know, valiantly standing against white supremacist violence, when obviously the history is a bit more complicated. Well, I think that's true and not true in terms of the public perception. You know, Mississippi Burning is a pretty old movie at this point. And I think when you see other films like Selma or all the way, right, Hoover, Hoover doesn't come across very well. I mean, I think it's very much now uh, kind of within a, a, a more critical civil rights narrative. And one of the tough things about making sense of all of this is that there were investigations where the FBI did a pretty good job against pretty substantial odds, you know, civil rights investigations. Those weren't, you know, when he was being asked to protect civil rights agitators. But when, you know, a really nationally significant murder occurred and Hoover felt, A, a law has been broken, B, it's in our jurisdiction, C, our legitimacy is at stake, you know, the FBI could put some real resources into things and do some good work. I guess I'm telling on my propensity for watching movies from the 1980s, having recently watched Mississippi Burning as I've been studying this. <laughs> it's not exactly what the what the vibe is in terms of the not exactly of the, the zeitgeist of uh, yeah, 2023. Well, and in, and in fact, there are all kinds of documentaries coming out, like uh, MLK slash FBI, uh, that talks about you know very openly about the role that uh, the FBI played in 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 surveilling and harassing and attacking Martin Luther King. And I had a broad understanding that this was the case. And of course, there's the famous letter that the FBI sends to Martin Luther King that seems to be suggesting that he should commit suicide. It is in in response to the surveillance of him having extramarital affairs, allegedly. But it, it wasn't until reading your book and then reading other books like Taylor Branch's Civil Rights Trilogy, you know, they can quote from the FBI transcripts of the wiretapping that they did on Martin Luther King and the rest of the civil rights movement, that you understand just how violently opposed the FBI. I mean, it was basically open policy within J. Edgar Hoover's FBI that the role of the FBI uh, was not just to keep a, a, a neutral eye on what was going on with the civil rights movement. The goal of the FBI was to disrupt and destroy the, the civil rights movement. And that has become more in the zeitgeist of, of that of the history of that period. But it's really shocking to actually read the internal correspondence in the Bureau that is arguing for that kind of disruption and attempted destruction, um, or just to know the extent to which they were wiretapping them wherever they went. Every conversation that civil rights leaders, especially MLK, uh, were having were ones that were recorded by the FBI, especially given the way that Martin Luther King obviously has become almost like a new founding father of the 20th century, or, you know, certainly one of the great, the great figures in American history to see how a figure like Hoover uh, just could, would, would not give up on his belief that King was a dupe of the Soviet Union, that there were people in his orbit who were acting on, uh, at the behest of the Soviet Union, and that in general, his approach to social change was one that needed to be stopped. That's shocking to, you know, 21st century ears of a person who, knows that the way that uh, MLK has become this towering figure in American history. Right. And looking at the documents myself, I often had that experience as well. I knew some of the basic outlines of this story, but to sit there, you know, 
page after page for hundreds and then thousands of pages and look at the energy that the FBI put into not only watching, but actively disrupting and going after King in particular is really quite stunning to see. The FBI's campaign against King, I think, also you know, it's suggestive of uh, the ways in which, you know, something that really did start as a as a kind of national security investigation of sorts, right? That some of the earliest surveillance of King and people in his orbit uh, was around the question of whether a couple of figures in King's orbit were still tied to the Communist Party, were secretly collaborating with the Communist Party while also working with King. But from there, it turned into wiretaps on almost everyone in his orbit, which produced a whole host of new information, both about political planning and movement strategy that's being funneled to people like John Kennedy, Uh, And then also produced information about King's personal life, such that, you know, by August of 1963, in the aftermath of uh, the March on Washington, they're beginning to talk about wiretapping King himself. That starts in late 1963. They find out even more about his personal life. So what was once a national security investigation and then uh, accelerated because they're mad that King's criticizing the FBI becomes intensely focused on his sex life. So by early 1964, it's not just phone wiretaps. They're actually putting bugs inside King's hotel rooms. And we say that as if, okay, people get their hotel rooms bugged. But the difficulty of doing that, it meant you had to know where King was going. So it meant you had to be listening to all the phone calls, having informants in his office who were going to tell you ahead of time where he's going when, what hotel he's going to be in. You work with the hotel staff to then figure out what room he's going to be in, what room your guys are going to be in, to get you know the microphone planted in the lamp so that you can put it in his room, staff all of the listening posts, uh, simply to find out who he was having sex with. Now, it turns out King was having sex with a lot of people. So the FBI got really obsessed with this. Um, but then the whole thing comes to a head, you know, in late uh, 1964 with not only these surveillance operations, but with active disruptive measures, Hoover publicly denouncing King and then the FBI threatening King privately. I should say, as a historian, the best document I've ever found was the unredacted version of that threatening letter that the FBI sent to Martin Luther King, this anonymous dirty tricks letter uh, that they sent to him in, in late 1964. That had been out there as a as in, in redacted form, but it turned out there was an unredacted letter sitting in the National Archives. And I thought, oh my gosh, This is the best document I am ever going to find in my whole career. A great service you've done to the American public in digging that document up. The part of Hoover's career that he is perhaps most notorious for, and that you seem to imply in the book that uh, really soiled his legacy in the minds of many Americans, is the COINTELPRO operation against new left groups uh, that uh, took off in the latter half of the 1960s and that was aimed 
at student groups that were opposed to the Vietnam War, uh, black power groups that were emerging in the late 60s, and many others. Uh, this has become somewhat of a familiar story, hopefully, to many people. What, one thing that I, the great irony in thinking about the revelations of COINTELPRO is uh, the way that the American people first came to know about COINTELPRO, uh, which was the result of the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI breaking into a media Pennsylvania office of the FBI and stealing over a thousand classified documents and then uh, leaking them to mainstream newspapers, which then blew up in the, the story of what the FBI had been doing in their attempts to uh, disrupt these groups. And it is deep irony, of course, that what this group of new leftists who never got caught by the FBI uh, there's a, a great documentary about them uh, that's out there that where they tell their story finally after, I think, 40 some years. Uh, they were essentially carrying out a kind of black bag operation of the type that the FBI itself was so skilled at carrying out. And so it was only in kind of mimicry of the FBI's methods uh, that we even came to learn about what happened with COINTELPRO. It was one of the kind of most extraordinary uh, operations ever directed at Hoover's FBI, you know, really a, a bunch of young anti-war activists in the Philadelphia area um, successfully broke into this FBI office, stole all of the files, uh, sent them out to the press and, and exposed these operations and never got caught. You can imagine how this enraged and infuriated Hoover, <laughs> both the fact that it had happened and then the fact that they that they never caught anyone. You know, COINTELPRO itself, I think, is interesting. It's a familiar story in certain ways that the FBI conducted these very elaborate disruptive operations against the Black Panthers, against civil rights activists, against the anti-war movement and the new left. There were a couple of pieces of it were surprising to me and I think are a little bit less known. Um, one is uh, the fact that this really started in the late 50s in a formal sense as an operation against the Communist Party, this is 56, 57, uh, because Hoover thought with Khrushchev's speech, uh, with all of the internal turmoil that the Communist Party was experiencing, it was a moment when the FBI could go in and cause so much disruption internally that you do away with the communists forever. Uh, he thought that some of the techniques they had been using before. The Supreme Court was saying, eh, you probably shouldn't do this anymore. Um, and so he thought this was going to be the way to destroy the communists. So what started as an operation really aimed at the Communist Party expanded very, very rapidly out into lots of other groups in the 60s. Um, the second piece that I found interesting was that they did have a series of COINTELPRO operations against the Ku Klux Klan against neo-Nazi groups, white supremacist groups during this period. And they're doing some of the same things to them um, that they're doing to the left. And they're pretty committed to that too. Um, so it's an interesting disjuncture to see them going after the Klan and Martin Luther King in the same moment. Uh, and then the last piece that I think is particularly important to note is that when this came out, it was, of course, a surprise of sorts to the public. People suspected these things were happening, though they didn't know them. But there's a considerable amount of evidence that Hoover did, at least in general terms, let the White House, 
let his allies in Congress know that these sorts of disruptive operations were underway. So we have this idea that it was super secret. Hoover was doing it all on his own authority, but there's lots of, of evidence that it was an open secret of sorts in the upper echelons of Washington. In thinking about how these revelations came to light, it took two new left activists breaking into a, a random isolated FBI office to bring these revelations to the public. On the other hand, assumedly an incredibly high number of FBI officers throughout the country were sitting around with these files in, in their own filing cabinets, and they were never leaked to the public, never given to journalists. Uh, so it, it sort of speaks to the kind of type ship that Hoover was famous for running, that every FBI agent must have known that this kind of operation was happening, and yet no knowledge of it ever reached the broader public. That's absolutely right. You know, Hoover, it's funny, when uh, Hoover died in May of 1972, right before the Watergate break-in, and certain parts of Watergate you can really read as a, as a crisis of succession at the FBI, uh, Hoover's third in command, the guy who thought that he was going to become the FBI director, is passed over by Nixon, a guy named Mark Felt. Mark Felt goes on to become Deep Throat even as he is uh, leading the FBI's Watergate investigation. But you can hear Richard Nixon, of all people, lamenting on the Nixon tapes that, by God, you know, if Hoover had still been in office, <laughs> that kind of leaking probably wouldn't have happened or Hoover would have worked with Nixon to contain it all. So, you know, Hoover leaked and the FBI leaked uh, when, when they wanted to, but Hoover, if nothing else, did in fact run a very tight ship. You know, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that Hoover and Nixon had this close relationship, but near the end of Hoover's life, as he had stepped back from people like McCarthy, who he maybe agreed with on broad terms politically, but but thought that they were a little too kooky or a little too uncareful or, or went too far in a sort of far right-wing direction, he seemed to have a similar assessment of what Nixon was doing in the White House too, right? Uh, and obviously history seems to vindicate that uh, approach to what Nixon was up to, that maybe if Nixon had learned a few more things from J. Edgar Hoover and been a bit more careful about what he was up to in the White House, that we would not have had the Watergate scandal in the way that it played out. That's right. Ironically, though, Hoover is pretty out of touch with a lot of things by the late 60s uh, and into the early 70s in his final years. Um, his judgment about where to draw lines, what public sentiment was going to tolerate, the kind of spirit of the age was probably better in certain ways than Richard Nixon's. Nixon wanted him to do some things that even J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't do. Before we end the conversation, I want to ask about the research process that goes into writing a book like this, because there must be an absolutely unfathomable number of documents that you had to sift through in order to write this, given that the book is about this massive federal bureaucracy that kept an incredibly thorough paper trail. And one of the many difficulties that I imagine, beyond just the sheer number of documents that you have to go through, is that you must have often been sifting through raw surveillance documents some of which were obtained illegally, that detail FBI agents claiming that they saw or heard certain things and found proof of certain acts, for example, what we were just talking about with Martin Luther King. But 
it seems clear that what the Bureau's agents reported back to Hoover, in addition to it possibly being illegally obtained or at least immorally obtained, was also strongly shaped by Hoover making it clear over and over again that figures like King and civil rights activists were to be seen as enemies of the Bureau. There's at least one part in the book where some agents come back to Hoover and you know say that something about King not being the kind of threat that Hoover uh, saw him out to be, and then Hoover very sternly reprimands them and, and says, no, actually, King is this threat, and you need to make sure, you know, the implication is that you need to make sure that when you're bringing me this intel, that it reflects that reality. So that kind of leadership by Hoover must have distorted what Bureau agents were reporting back to Hoover himself. Uh, and of course, many of the claims that are found through these raw surveillance logs haven't been proven in a court of law. So the evidence that you have to, to work with in, in crafting a biography like this, I assume you must have uh, had to, on a case-by-case basis of each document that you're assessing that, that falls into some of that gray territory, you must have had to wrestle with how to deal with the fact that the claims here maybe have been illegally obtained and they, the person in question wasn't found guilty in a court of law. The evidence wasn't uh, presented in the way that you would have to do through a regular court proceeding. So how did you deal with all of that as you were going through all of these FBI documents? It's certainly true that the documents from Hoover's career and this enormous span of time in which he was in charge of this enormous <laughs> bureaucracy and in which he encouraged everybody to write everything down, right? It's a lot to deal with. And on the one hand, it's far too much. And then on the other hand, a lot of the things that you want to know, you're never going to know for a variety of reasons, right? It was a secret bureaucracy. The Freedom of Information Act is a great tool, but to use it effectively, you have to know what to ask for. And so if you don't know in the first place, right, it's, there's some complications there. And then, as you say, even when you have the documents that you want and need, uh, how to read them, how to understand them is a big challenge. In the end, this was a biography. And so part of what I was trying to understand in some cases was not whether these allegations were necessarily true or not, but whether Hoover understood them to be true, what kind of information he had access to, and then how he seemed to be responding to it, right? So a great example are the Venona transcripts. Uh, Venona was a secret investigation uh, into Soviet espionage in which the FBI was decrypting Soviet intelligence cables. They found a lot of good stuff. It's how they got Julius Rosenberg and other people in that circle. But to me, in some ways, the most interesting thing was that they were aware that they were only able to decrypt a tiny proportion of what else was there, right? So what do you conclude from Venona? You understand why they think this is probably going on everywhere, even though the information that they have it's very hard to understand. A lot of it's not very good information, et cetera. So there were a lot of instances like that, you know, and ultimately you just have to make these judgments in context in a kind of case by case basis. 
And in some cases, these are actually incredibly great and sometimes underutilized tools for social historians, for people who are trying to understand, you know, the internal dynamics of the left. Informants are not always super reliable, but sometimes part of what they're doing is gathering all of the meeting minutes, right, and transcripts of entire meetings. <laughs> so you actually have this kind of remarkable social history archive in some cases that is pretty straightforward. You know, these organizations come and go, and really the only place that the, the archive still exists is, is at the FBI, which collected their publications and took meetings of their minutes and taped their phone calls. And, and so that can be really valuable, even if what you're trying to understand is not the Bureau, but the people who are, are the subjects of, of surveillance. My final question is about the contemporary FBI. You're a historian of Hoover. The book focuses on Hoover's life. It uh, doesn't really go much beyond that, but you do have a blurb on the book jacket of your book from uh, former FBI director James Comey, who seems to be implying that he tried to learn something about this history and its excesses. And I remember hearing him say in an interview that I think he has something like a, a reproduction of the uh, letter sent to Martin Luther King urging suicide on his desk. He used to have it on his desk. So on the one hand, you have someone like Comey saying that they want to learn from what the FBI did wrong in this history. On the other hand, there are regularly new revelations coming out and new reporting about FBI surveillance of activists of all types and sometimes allegations of the FBI doing disruptive activity within these kind of activist groups. So uh, what is your sense of how the Bureau has or has not changed its behavior and its practices as a result of these practices from Hoover's lifetime being exposed to the American public? I think in Comey's case, if memory serves, what he had on his desk was the wiretap order. Uh, it was Robert Kennedy's wiretap order. Robert Kennedy signed off on it, uh, targeting Martin Luther King. But more broadly, you know, I do think that the FBI is a more constrained and accountable institution than it was during Hoover's era for lots of reasons. There are different congressional committees that have more authority over the FBI. We have the Freedom of Information Act. The FBI director's term is more limited. Um, and there are a set of real structural constraints in place that I think do make a difference in the in the culture and structure of the FBI. Uh, but that said, the FBI is still fundamentally, you know, the institution that Hoover built, which is to say it has a law enforcement capacity and it is also supposed to be our domestic intelligence service. And a lot of the places where the FBI's work has been the most questionable, um, has gotten it into trouble in civil liberties questions, in uh, kind of abuse of power type situations is not so much on the law enforcement side, but is in this very nebulous realm of intelligence. And so, you know, I think that is a nebulous realm. It's a secret realm. It's a realm that is still to this day, you know, full of judgments about people's political opinions. It full of the use of informants and undercover operatives, right? And in some cases, the FBI is being urged to do more. In other cases, people are, are, are outraged by what it's doing. But 
you know, that that is going to be a set of questions that the FBI is going to be contending with for a long time, precisely because we've decided we we want to have a domestic intelligence operation, apparently, and those uh, end up being pretty subjective judgments. Beverly Gage, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, especially for reading the whole long book, which is long. The chapters are short, but the book is is quite long. So thanks. <laughs> Beverly Gage is a professor of history at Yale and the author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, which received the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Biography and numerous other awards. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theoria Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also leave us a good review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.